Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and your host today is Carla Reffold. We are joined by Kevin Cunningham. Kevin has over a decade of experience in business continuity, crisis management, and disaster recovery for companies like Equinix, NBC Universal, UBS, and the New York City Emergency Management Department. Hope you enjoy. Beecher Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me today. It's really exciting to talk to you. Thanks, Carla. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. So, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us where you grew up, where you were educated. Sure. So I grew up on the east coast of the U.S. Um, in Connecticut, in a small town, um, uh, just about just about an hour uh, from New York City. I've actually lived here my entire life. Um, I went to uh, high school and elementary school here in Connecticut, and then. Um, went to Boston University for my undergrad and then graduate degrees um, and uh, have been working for the most part in the area. Uh, I was a, a paramedic for many years, um, worked in New York City towards the end of my career, uh, was fortunate enough to work in both the New York City Health Department and the New York City Office of Emergency Management doing disaster planning for the for the city of New York, which was an incredible experience, as you could imagine, post 9-11. Um, and then uh, worked uh, for uh, UBS. Um, they had, uh, at the time, recently opened their America's headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut, fortunately. So um, I worked there for a number of years uh, and then worked at NBC Universal as their head of business continuity, crisis management, and emergency services for about four years and about three years ago, uh, work now as the head of uh, business continuity program office for Equinix, which is a, uh, a essentially a data center company. And having worked in a couple of different industries, do you see big differences uh, between them for resilience and business continuity planning? I think that, you know, you see more similarities than you think. Um, I think that big differences that you see is some of the drivers of the program. So, of course, in in financial services, um, I found uh, myself most of the day um, dealing with regulators or regulations around business continuity. And then um, you do very much the same kind of work at NBC and at, at Equinix, but you don't find such a such a heavy regulatory component. So more of it uh, at, at NBC and Equinix has been, uh, you know, business driven and customer centric driven versus regulatory driven. 
And how do you feel um, the balance is, uh, do you feel it's changed over the past sort of 10 years or so from being around protecting revenue to protecting people and customers, like you just mentioned? Um, you know, I think it, it depends on certainly the business and the industry. Um, I think probably, you know, 15 years ago, it was more um, revenue focused and then kind of business line focused. I mean, and I think that probably had a lot to do with kind of the regulatory authorities looking over you. But I think now, um, particularly acutely, um, it's more kind of people focused um, with uh, with everything going on in the, in the environment that um, you know people are realizing that you know we, we may have missed the ball on um, focusing on the business whereas you know your people are the most essential component of that um, so I do feel like uh, it's been a little bit of a shift from a business focus to a to a people focus and I, and I think that's just a, a generality right I, I, I think uh, you know if you talk to my peers across the industry you'll you'll see uh, uh, they'll say similar things now obviously for for most resilience professionals we're kind of in an unprecedented situation um, what have you seen people doing that's helped them be really successful during this time yeah it's interesting um, you know you find people uh, businesses that had really complex and have thought and spent a lot of time on their pandemic planning. Um, and the, overwhelmingly, the folks that I have talked to in the industry um, have said, well, you know, gosh, I spent I spent the last three years working on my pandemic plan and drilling the pandemic, uh, you know, doing pandemic exercise. And not a single one of those efforts has been useful um, now just because some of the assumptions that you have to make when you develop a pandemic plan never really played out to what we're seeing, to the extent we're seeing now. Um, so I've, I, I, I feel that, um, again, people that I've talked to say that, gosh, that I wish I didn't spend so much time on my pandemic plan. Not that it wasn't important, but... Um, that uh, nobody really expected this and their pandemic plan just just hadn't really been useful. I, I think that um, overwhelmingly the people who have been successful are the people who have spent time um, with their crisis management response piece um, and, uh, and have a kind of like cohesive crisis management team um, you know, based in a, based in your regions that you operate, um, that you're able to bring together quickly, uh, make de make decisions, um, and uh, and and pivot very quickly because we've you know we we saw uh, you know starting in in January or February uh, in Asia Pacific, you know it moved very very quickly, and some of the decisions you had made yesterday didn't apply to, or, or, you know, you got different guidance today and having your teams be able to work together quickly, digest information, pivot, and, um, and, you know, kind of work within a framework was much more useful than having a very detailed pandemic plan, which, 
you know may or may not have been applicable in this in this case. So uh, I think I think generally the the folks who spent time on on having a a crisis management structure that's functional um, and works versus having a detailed pandemic plan was was um, was probably the most helpful. Do you think that sort of leads into some best practice around how you should go about your crisis management plans? I do. I do. I think, um, I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, when everything started to explode in January or February, um, having to create that structure on the fly and, you know, identifying the people who should be responsible for HR communications or your operations or finance. Um, I think having identified all of that uh, pre and then um, and exercising it to make sure that everybody knows what their roles and responsibilities are, um, what the tools you have available to you are, um, where you're going to get your data from, how you're going to communicate. Um, I think I think that's probably the best practice. Again, if if you found yourself in January or February creating a crisis management structure in response to COVID-19, um, you 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 probably struggled a lot. Whereas those companies that that were you know can push a button, bring the crisis management team together, and start working immediately and responding to the event, um, were much more successful. What are some of the challenges you've seen um, from companies that you're working with that they've experienced? I feel like um, just globally trying to get consistent data um, about you know the situation and what's going on. Obviously, the WHO has kind of done. World Health Organization has done a good job, but with you know posting case counts and and you can argue whether those numbers are accurate based on a given country or region. Um, but I think you know some of the some of the trouble um, people are having now is now that we're entering the reopen phase, right, is is getting some guidance from the local health ministries, um, local governments, because um, some some places are saying, um, yes, you can open your your non uh, essential offices and you can start uh, having people come back at 10% or 20%. And then there are other locations that don't really give so much guidance. So it's, it's really hard, particularly if you're a global company to apply like a, a consistent met, uh, metric, um, that you can get consistent data. Um, and also, um, definitively say that the local government or health ministry will uh, allow you to open your office once you kind of develop those uh, metrics um, and say, yep, we, we feel comfortable based on the you know number of cases, the test penetration rate, the you know whatever you're looking at. Um, if you say, okay, we're comfortable with all those things, then the local government might actually not be you know might be saying that yeah, I mean all those things are green. However, um, we're still going to not allow uh, folks to come back to offices in some wholesale fashion. So I think, I think those are some of the, the struggles currently. Are you seeing it the other way around where sort of local governments are saying it's okay, but companies aren't ready? I think, I think there are two pieces to that. I think there, 
I think companies may or may not be ready. Um, and I think there's that's a, that's a function of two things. I think that's a, a function of employee sentiment. Um, you know, if you do kind of some polling of your employees um, by region and even by state in the Americas or country um, in EMEA or APAC, you'll find that you'll get very, very different employee sentiment about wanting to come back. I think you know, because um, APAC, you know, generally saw this um, first and they've been kind of disrupted for a longer period of time. And now that they're coming back um, a little bit earlier than you know, the Americas or, or EMEA, you'll find that employee sentiment there is generally um, higher to return to the office. And if you just think about like Hong Kong, um, they've been dealing with disruptions via these protests for over a year now. So, so I think you'll you'll just generally see that that the folks there are kind of more eager to come back than um, would be other places um, in, in EMEA and certainly the Americas. So I think it's a function of do employees even want to come back, and if they could come back, do they feel comfortable com coming back? And you'll see. Um, a wide range of, of those uh, sentiments. And I think also um, some uh, employers just aren't ready to reopen their offices, right? Because it's going to be a new operating environment when they come back. Um, and, you know, social distancing in an office is going to be, you know, different. They're going to have to reconfigure their floor plans, think about things like common areas and high touch surfaces and, um, and having enough supplies on hand to do disinfection and, and uh, you know, hand sanitizer, those type of things, face coverings and doing um, temperature monitoring and screening and all those things. So that might take a little while, depending on, on where you are and what your, your business is. So I think that um, uh, people coming back is going to be a function of do they want to come back? is the business ready to come back? And like you said, Carla, is, is the, are the numbers look like uh, it's safe to come back? And then also is the government saying that you can come back? And who do you feel in the business should be taking responsibility for some of those, those issues? Well, I really think it's a cross-functional team that needs to be looking at this. You know, obviously you're going to have, your facilities team looking at, um, you know, kind of the functions in the office that um, things like getting hand sanitizer, hand wipes, doing in, in, uh, increased cleaning, working with HR to do screening and to ensure that employees aren't coming in sick. It's the business continuity team identifying the critical staff that need to come back in conjunction with the business. It's the communications team communicating everything we just talked about to make sure the employees understand that there's a new set of rules. Um, you know, I think, I don't think there's one answer and I think it really varies by, by business, but again, it kind of comes back to that crisis that having a, a solid crisis management team that's able to work together to make this, make those decisions and, um, and, and communicate them to the staff and uh, making your, your, your folks feel comfortable when they do want to come back. 
Now, over the past few years, I think we've seen a a difference in how much um, interaction crisis management teams have been able to have in the business, how much buy-in they've been able to get. It's been a a while since our last big event, which normally gives you you some attention. So have you seen something similar? I have. I have. Um, You know, uh, we all do crisis management exercises, and most of the time you when when you engage with the business, you get some kind of moans and groans. They do it, but not necessarily willingly. And um, and then you know, as as this COVID situation started to heat up, and you had da- some you know somewhat daily calls, this collective light goes off with everybody, and they're like, ah, this is why you make us do this. I get it now. I promise. I'll never complain again about the crisis management exercises you make us do. So I do think, you know, um, you know, being in the forefront, being the lead, um, you know, COVID specifically, but now you're just seeing a, a whole number of things pop up. Uh, the, the first of this month was the start of uh, hurricane season officially in the U.S., and we've already had our third named storm, um, which is fairly unprecedented. So, you know, you layer on COVID with storms, with earthquakes, with the civil unrest that's happening not acutely in America, but also kind of spilling into the other regions um, regarding kind of, you know, the ongoing issues of the day. I think it really brings to the forefront um business continuity and crisis management issues and you're tending to see uh, a lot more businesses engage um, and get more visibility at the at, at higher levels well that's something we've touched on over this week that you know we've got one crisis but actually that doesn't mean that your other risks have gone away and like you've just said you know we're now seeing other big crisis events so how many companies do you think plan for multiple events at one time I would say, you know, not many. I think we tend to look at these things as singular events. You know, I have an earthquake plan. I have a pandemic plan. I have a a cyber plan. Rarely do we think of um, those things happening in parallel, right? Having a cyber event during a pandemic, being able to, to shelter people in place. And I'm not not necessarily just a business, but think about, you know, local emergency management. Um, you know, how do you, how do you shelter and how do you bring people to hurricane shelters in a pandemic? What does that look like? Right. Cause I think, you know, a, a hurricane shelter almost by definition isn't social distancing. Right. So I think people are really starting to look now at, because we've been doing this for what, five, six months now, things have started to happen and you wonder, geez, um, you know, do I have the ability to run an ongoing COVID event? And if a hurricane, you know, the the hurricane that's currently brewing in the, the Gulf of Mexico, what if that hits one of my sites? Or if we do have, you know, gosh forbid, a, a cyber event, or if there's an earthquake, or, you know, the ongoing civil unrest hits or impacts my business, how do I run, you know, essentially two parallel crises? Um, 
and ensure that that uh, both my employees are safe, but um, I keep the ongoing operations of my business. Uh, I think I think you're going to start to see more and more folks uh, plan uh, and and drill for um, multiple events having at the same time. And I think you know to my earlier point about the moans and groans you get about the the exercises you run and they kind of like you know you 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 tend to push the envelope in your scenarios and you get you get some eyes rolling and kind of under the breath well that would never happen well it's happening um, and I think in the future you're going to see um, people push the envelope in your scenario in your crisis scenarios and I think you're going to get less and less pushback because people can't say, oh, we would never have a pandemic and a hurricane and civil unrest at the same time. Well, yeah, we're seeing that right now. How do you look after people in a hurricane when there's a pandemic? I think it's challenging. I think, um, you know, you have to perhaps, and I'm thinking, and I'm putting on my kind of local government emergency management hat on now, is perhaps you have to rethink those mass congregate care settings where you open up the Superdome in New Orleans or you, you know, open up a small number of schools and pack a, a large number of people in them to, to shelter in place for the hurricane. I think now you're really going to have to distribute that model um, in the era of social distancing and, and kind of think of other ways you can shelter people in place that that aren't in a single large location. Obviously, the logistics of that are going to be incredibly challenging, but it's something we're really going to have to think about. Now, you mentioned as well about a cyber plan. You know, we've seen an increase in the amount of cyber attacks that have happened uh, over the last few months as, you know, people seek to take advantage of businesses that maybe aren't functioning in their normal way. How closely do you see business continuity and cyber teams working together? Well, I think they have to be um, absolutely attached at the hip because, you know, as as business continuity and crisis management folks, we aren't necessarily the um, subject matter experts when it comes to cyber most of the time. Um, you use that, you know, you, you, you generally use your, your cyber team if you have one of your IT infosec teams um, to manage that, but they use your crisis management structure, right? So, so you treat it kind of like any other uh, crisis, um, just, just, you know, I think the, the, the cyber team takes lead um, in that. Uh, but again, you've, you've had to have put that structure in place for people to come together quickly and respond and make very, very quick decisions about, well, I'm going to roll back to tape. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to pay the ransom for the ransomware. Um, you know, you, you've had to have kind of had the team come together and understand um, what data is important. You, and you'll, you'll find that, um, you know, if you read kind of some of the after action reports of these um, uh, malware, you know, ransomware attacks. Um, most people spend uh, the majority of the try time trying to figure out and debate um, if the data that they lost or is, or is being held ransom is actually even um, 
useful. So I think having gone through the exercise of identifying what your important pieces of data are, so you can very make very quickly make a decision about, oh yeah, we care about that. We're going to either have to now pay or try to try to you know get it from a backup. And I feel like a lot of time is lost from from folks who um, who spend a, a day or two trying to figure out whether the, the data that they have that's that's been compromised is even important to them or not, right? So I think being able to make a quick decision on that um, is is incredibly helpful for when it comes to restoration. The, the sense I get talking to people is that business continuity professionals understand cyber as being one of their risks, but the, the same isn't necessarily true the other way around, that, you know, cyber cyber people have only just started talking about that and just started talking about how they need to get their um, PR and corporate comms teams involved if they have an incident. Um, do you see the same thing? I have been seeing the same thing. And, and I think I think you're right, Carla. I think often those cyber teams have kind of been, um, and again, and I think this is just a generalization across the industry um, that the cyber teams have, you know, been those teams that are, you know, locked in a closet somewhere and, and work very much uh, among themselves, and you know they're monitoring and they're, you know, they're doing all the things that they do day to day. But then when something happens, right, it's trying to bring the decision makers together, where sometimes people struggle. So I think, I think you're right. I think we're starting to see, particularly with the events happening now, that those cyber teams generally are are more active um, uh, and regular participants in the crisis management structure um, than they were before. And what do you think, if you were looking forward, we'll, we'll see change over the coming couple of years? Do, we, do you think we'll see big changes in the continuity industry? Um, I think I think recovery strategies are gonna are gonna change, right? Because I think um, I think the whole construct of people having to work in an office um, is, you know, we've we've always assumed that, yeah, we 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 need to have an office and we need to have people there, and I think that's probably going to be still true for some businesses. Um, but I think that's probably going to change. I think you're going to have more of a remote um, workforce. I think you're going to have people who are working um, from locations that are separate from uh, their their main headquarters and offices. And I think you're you're really going to see a, a switch from. I have an office and I have a recovery site as my as as my contingency plan. I just I just don't see that that growing. I think you're going to you're going to have I I see I have an office which you know previously had a you know 100 people in it. Well going forward this office is now going to have only 50 people in it and the other 50 people are going to work from home and if I lost that location um you know, we're gonna we're gonna kind of make those other fifty people work from home. I think I think technology is such that um, you know you can probably do most of the things that you need to do um, from 
you know, not sitting in your office anymore. Um, so I just, I think the, the kind of permutation of rec recovery strategies is going to change from the traditional primary site, secondary site. I think you're going to see a lot of more, a lot more creativity in the way businesses structure their, um, their recovery strategies, whether it be remote or working from home or, you know, kind of, you know, handing over to another region, um, uh, those strategies, are, I, I suspect, are going to be more more common these days. It feels like if we're in lots of different locations and people can work from anywhere, that feels like we're then more secure and we've reduced risk. But do you think that is the case, or are there other risks that we're maybe not thinking about? Well, I think from a location strategy, you know, I, th I feel like there are three major risks, right? There's, you have a location strategy, i.e., you know, your buildings, um, and then you have a technology risk, you know, the, the systems you use, and you have a people risk, right? It's the, the people who use them. So I think, you know, everybody really, really quickly got forced to, um, to implement their building strategy because offices closed and then kind of people realized that, oh yeah, um, we, we may, maybe not, don't necessarily need to work in the office. And I think for the most part, the technology has, has fortunately been steady and we haven't seen too many technology disruptions as a result of COVID-19. I think, I think where we're going to put probably a little bit more focus, um, is on the people, right? Because you, you kind of, are the people always going to be available to work from home? And, and we've been somewhat fortunate in the, you know, the, the death toll from COVID-19 has been overwhelming and, and I can't even, you know, I'm still wrapping my brain around the numbers that come out and you see every day, you know, in the US it's been over a hundred thousand people have died. Um, but you still look at, you know, kind of some of the epidemiology tables and and look at COVID nineteen versus, you know, it's it it does, uh, you know, depending on on what you're looking at, it does appear to be more virulent and affect people more than than just the regular seasonal flu, but not as as deadly as some other contagions out there. But if you think about what's next, right? If if a, the next pandemic or whatever it is um, is more deadly, you're you're going to really have to think about more on the people's side. To your earlier point, is if I if if people start, um, I mean, I, I can't even imagine this, but you know, if it were more deadly and it was more debilitating for more folks, you're going to have a real problem on your people strategy, um, and and this has taught us that. Um, you know, it's not it's not located in any one region, right? You know, if you have a people strategy where, okay, with a bunch of people I lose in in uh, in Asia Pacific, um, uh, I can just hand over the work to the people in EMEA or America as well. You know, all three regions have been hit fairly hard, and and it makes you wonder during the next pandemic if um, if the contagion is worse and more deadly. We already know that it's going to hit all the regions very, very quickly. Uh, what's your strategy then, right? If, if, if you're if you're seeing death tolls in the, the very high in all regions, and you relied on a on a transfer your work from one one region to the other, well, that that doesn't work, right? So you know, having a backup force or 
you know, quickly training other people from within your functions to take on work or cross-training, um, I think you're going to see a lot more of that, Carla. And do you expect that companies are going to start investing more in their planning? Or do you think they might say, do you know what, we survived this without a great plan for it, so we'll probably just survive the next thing? I feel like you're going to have companies, um, particularly those who who didn't have a great plan, are going to start, and you're already seeing it in the, in the market, right? You're already seeing companies who didn't have a dedicated business continuity person, um, they're going to say, never again are we going to do that. We're going to either, you know, that that guy who, guy or gal who, you know, had business continuity as a part-time position, um, they're going to make that a full-time position or people or, or, you know, companies that didn't have it at all are going to say, wow, we really learned our lesson here. We need to hire somebody. Um, and you just hear, I've been hearing, you know, kind of countless companies who who didn't invest a lot in it, even though they, you know, they did okay um, without having really robust plans. And, and these are probably the smaller-ish companies that they're gonna, they're, they've always, they're gonna vow to, um, to you know, take it more seriously. And and you you kind of see that in in almost every event, whether it be Hurricane Sandy or 9/11 or Fukushima. You see companies immediately panic and and go to market for a business continuity person, or they get through the event. They take a couple months to put together headcount and budget, and six months later, you'll see them start hiring en masse. Um, so I, I think we're we're kind of seeing both uh, in this instance. And if somebody is listening who thinks, actually, that could be a career that I'd be really interested in and it feels a little bit recession-proof, maybe they've been affected quite badly <laughs> right now, sure. um, what advice would you give to somebody? What sort of things do they need to go do or get experience in? How do you get started? Um, you know, I, I always cringe um, when people... Um, you know, apply for business continuity jobs um, when they don't actually have any demonstrable business continuity experience um, and, and or training. So, you know, I think probably one of the best and, and, and you'll see that a lot that, you know, I, oh, I have a background in, um, you know, what, whatever it is, kind of something peripheral um, but not necessarily business continuity or crisis management focused. I would say probably one of the best things to do is to do some research on getting certified, whether it's through, you know, I, I don't have a, have a preference on um, any one of the different, you know, certifications, um, but I would, you know, invest some time in um, actually getting uh, either an associate a certification or a master's certification in business continuity or crisis management. Um, and again, there's a number of different organizations. I don't, I don't necessarily think think one is um, the better answer than the other. Just you know, do your own research, figure out what's what works best for you, and actually get some demonstrable uh, training in it. 
um, because I do think that going forward, the candidates that that have kind of some peripheral uh, business continuity and crisis management skills um, are going to get quickly filtered out um, for the people who do have, you know, a certification, masters of business continuity, or certified business continuity planner, or whatever it is, um, certified emergency manager. Those people are really going to probably get the first looks going forward than than the, the people who, who who don't actually have demonstrable business continuity experience on their resume. And how do you make sure that you keep learning and developing? I think you could just kind of have to force yourself to do it. Uh, you know, some of these some of those certifications come with some continuing continuing education re- requirements, but. Um, I think I think that there are two pearls to 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 your point and keeping up to date is um, you know go and attend a conference or you know attend a, a three day you know, business continuity crisis management seminar um, and I think a that's important but I think probably even more important than than some of the learnings and sessions that you attend during those. Is the is the connections you make with people, and um, and you know if you can't do that, and you're you know you work in an area, um, look up the people who who have similar jobs to you um, in in your area in different industries or companies, and just invite them for breakfast, and or you know call them and say hey. You know, I'm I'm Kevin. I do some somewhat similar to what you do. I know you work in a hospital, and I work in a at a financial services industry. But let's sit down and kind of go over um, how you look at things. I think I think being open to um, uh, uh, being social, having dialogue, and you'd you'd be you'd be uh, you'd be shocked when I was at UBS um, we would have a monthly breakfast with the people at JP Morgan Chase and Credit Suisse and Citibank and and everybody was was really kind of willing to to share some of the challenges and and um, some of the successes that they've had even though we're all technically competitors right um, but the the folks, in that circle, um, it, it, it certainly, I think that one of the reasons why they, they are willing to kind of share is um, we, all, we all are interdependent on each other in terms of, you know, from a financial services perspective, if, if, if one financial services company fails, it's going to have a significant impact on us. But also, um, you know, if you, it, it's it's really great to be able to have a like a informal network where you can just send them a text message or a chat and say, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, this for these reasons. Um, you know, tell me your thoughts on this, and have, having to get some instant feedback that you kind of know and trust um, is is incredibly valuable. I think as a, an industry, people are really open to helping and to sharing that knowledge. I think you're right. And I think we don't, even though we might work for, you know, competing companies or, or, or completely different industries, I do think people are willing to share kind of, you know, not totally open up their books and let you see, but I think, um, you know, we're, it's a, it's a small 
group of folks um, and you tend to see the same faces when you go to these conferences or industries um, and if you have a relationship with that and you trust them I think it, uh, to, to your point Carla it, it, it's really valuable to be able to make a single phone call and say hey I'm thinking about implementing this um, for these reasons uh, what are you seeing can you know poke some holes in this because it, it's it, it's um, it's valuable to get some um, outside uh, insight onto some of the things you're thinking and 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 also you know they might be able to give you things that they're thinking or you're both struggling with the same thing perhaps we can work together and kind of share some knowledge on that now we finish each podcast with 10 quickfire questions so I need the first thing that comes into your head are you ready? Yeah, go. <laughs> what turns you on professionally? Uh, I think turns me on professionally is the is the the visibility we've now gotten, and maintaining that visibility and kind of keeping that growth uh, in the industry. I think that's uh, that's incredibly exciting. What turns you off professionally? Hmm. Uh, people who still don't get it and think, you know, we did this, we did, we, we did this without, uh, a whole lot of intervention from the business continuity team. Um, I'm still not going to take your phone call when you, when you call and, 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 or participate in your exercises. How do you unwind? <laughs> um, I've got, a uh, two, two, uh, young kids and two young, uh, pups. So I think carving out some time to, uh, sit and relax and, and, uh, talk about everybody's day, uh, is, is probably the thing that I look forward most in my day. What profession other than your own would you like to try? <laughs> I think if I had to move um, completely out of business continuity or crisis management, um, I think I'd I'd like to run a um, a race team, uh, a race car team, and I think the logistics and um, all of that is is incredibly intriguing to me. I don't know why, but I just find it fascinating that that it's a kind of convergent of of raw power and technology and logistics, um, I think would be really fun. What activity gives you the most energy? Um, I think um, in terms of my personal life is um, being involved in the the lives and activities of my kids, actually. So going to soccer games, coaching baseball being a part of um, the community are the things that kind of give me the most energy outside of work. Who is your biggest inspiration? Um, I, I very deliberately choose not to work for a company or an industry, but to work for a person. I think if you choose uh, to work, I want to work at XYZ company, or I want to work in XYZ um, industry, I think you're going to kind of set yourself up for failure. So I think that the, you know, your, your boss or your, your, your direct, um, your, the people who you report to 
if you can't draw inspiration from them, you're going to just be unhappy. So I, I deliberately choose the people who I work for as the people um, who, who inspire me in addition to obviously my family and my, my coworkers and, and my direct reports as well. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Adaptability, the ability to very quickly adapt to, a, to an ever-changing crisis. You are at your best when you're doing what? Locking the door, uh, filtering out all external stimuli, uh, pouring myself a cup, a cup of coffee, putting headphones on and focusing on a task and, and, um, and figuring out a solution to some really complex problem you have. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? I'm, I'm probably guilty of not doing this, but, um, you know, putting your iPhone away when you're away from work, not worrying about work and spending more time with your family. We always hear those, that the adage that, um, you know, that on your deathbed, the, the thing that you're going to regret most is the amount of time you spend at work and not focusing on your family. So I think we're all particularly now uh, acutely guilty of that. But uh, I think that would, you know, spending more time with family and friends and the, on the things you enjoy versus um, being totally all times consumed in work, um, I think would, would probably be, be the advice there. Hard to do in the current environment, but... Um, I think you get it. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Uh, you put people in front of um, yourself. You treat others with care and compassion. Um, your honesty and integrity are the things that... Uh, that are the reason why you're here. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.